Welcome to season five of Penn South Africa's podcast, The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. I'm your host, Nadia Davids, and I'm the current president of Penn South Africa. Every year, on the 15th of November, Penn centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer, and at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings, and it is from this symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison, or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. And at the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with publisher, human rights defender and civil society leader Osman Kavala. In April of this year, Kavala was sentenced to life in prison in Turkey without the possibility of parole. Kavala was first detained in October 2017, but only officially charged 16 months after his arrest. He was accused of being responsible for crimes allegedly committed by protesters across Turkey during the 2013 Gezi Park protests. The majority of defendants in this case were acquitted in February 2020, but Kavala was immediately arrested for, and I quote, attempting to overthrow the constitutional order through violence and force in connection with the 2016 failed coup attempt. The prosecutor's appeal against their acquittals was upheld in November 2020 and a retrial was ordered. Kavala was further accused of espionage. In April 2022, in the final hearing of the Gezi Park case, the judicial panel delivered a verdict of aggravated life in prison for Kavala. His co-defendants were each sentenced to 18 years in prison. Penn International's president, Burhan Sonmez, said of the results, this verdict marks a shocking milestone in Osman Kavala's gross miscarriage of justice and a cruel day for his co-defendants. Penn South Africa joins Penn International and other Penn centers around the world in calling for the release of Osman Kavala. You can read more about the intricacies of his case in the show notes. In this fifth episode of season five, I am most honored to host Justice Elby Sachs, a revered and much-loved South African author, activist, and former constitutional court judge. This is a really special episode, and we've taken a slightly different approach. Instead of our usual interview format, we've handed the microphone over to Justice Sachs to share his memories and to tell the story of the jail diary. It's a rare opportunity and an intimate experience to listen to Elby in this way, and we're so happy to be able to share it with you. Justice Sachs reflects on 168 days in solitary confinement and on his composition of the jail diary of Albie Sachs, which was first published in 1966, but written in the two years between two different detentions. He explains how he found beauty in the telling of these experiences of harsh deprivation and quiet chaos, and how he endured that time by dreaming, singing, whistling, hoping, exercising, and finally reading and writing when he was granted access to books, all the while holding fast to the principles that brought him there, though he does say in the interview that nothing, nothing prepares you for solitary confinement. I'm Nadia Davids. I'm a writer and the current president of Penn South Africa. Knowing LB Sachs and speaking to him on this podcast has been one of the great honors of my life. I first read Albi's jail diary when I was 12 or 13, so it must have been 1990 or 91, and his memoir, banned for so long, was suddenly available in shops. I remember my sister seeing it at our local CNA, her dashing over and asking my mother to buy it. Leila read that book in a single sitting and let me do the same straight after. There are books that change your life, and Albi Sachs's diary was one of them for me. It remains a vivid, affecting, often beautifully drawn portrait of a young man standing defiant and true against the grossly unjust excesses of apartheid. The reminiscence is written during a feverish and immensely difficult period between detentions, and though Sachs does not flinch from the darkness he sees and is subject to, 
or from the appalling violence he knows that others are experiencing, he maintains a kind of optimism, a determination to connect throughout that is humbling and inspiring. I'm not in South Africa at the moment, and in preparing for this episode, I went to the Los Angeles Central Public Library for a copy of The Jail Diary. There were several copies, but the one I picked up was incredibly a first edition published in 1966. And as I held it and felt the weight of it and thumbed its decades-old pages, I found the book as an object itself unexpectedly moving. I was holding a book, you see, by a fellow South African that had been banned in our country at the time of its publication. I was holding a book by a person who, though not a writer when he went to jail, would go on to become one. And I was holding a book that informed me in precise and terrifying detail what the contours of apartheid looked like from within a cell and just how threatening writers and ideas were to oppressive regimes. Albi Sachs is an activist, writer and former judge on the Constitutional Court of South Africa between 1994 and 2009. He began practicing as an advocate at the Cape Bar at the age of 21, defending people charged under the racial statutes and security laws of apartheid. After two spells of being detained in solitary confinement without trial, first for five months and then for three months, he went into exile in England, where he completed a PhD at Sussex University. In 1988, he lost his right arm and his sight in one eye when a bomb was placed in his car by South African security agents in Maputo, Mozambique. After the bombing, he devoted himself to the preparations for a new democratic constitution for South Africa. When he returned home from exile, he served as a member of the Constitutional Committee and on the National Executive of the African National Congress until the first democratic elections in 1994. Sachs is a board member of the Constitution Hill Trust, which promotes constitutionalism and the rule of law. He has traveled to many countries, sharing South Africa's experiences that might heal divided societies. Sachs is the author of several books, including The Jail Diary of Albie Sachs, which we discuss on the podcast today, Justice in South Africa, Sexism and the Law, Soft Vengeance of a Freedom Fighter, and The Strange Alchemy of Life and Law. His latest books are We the People, Insights of a Judge Activist, and Oliver Tambo's Dream. And most recently, the Clooney Foundation for Justice, founded by Amal and George Clooney, have announced that their inaugural awards ceremony is named in honor of Elby Sachs, the Elby Award. The one statement that has, has lived with me very strongly is one, one chapter opens with, I've, I've done lots of things that were not so good in my life, forget the exact words, but one thing I'm absolutely sure of, I'm in jail not for being bad, but for being good. And I think that's vital. And I think that's the most important thing for prisoners of conscience to retain, is never to give up on the fact that the hell they're going through is not because they were wicked or unworthy or whatever it is, but because they were good. So Justice Sachs, LB, it really is a unique honor to have you with us on the Empty Chair podcast. Your lifespanning commitment to equality, freedom, justice, dignity for all our people has often come at tremendous personal cost and it's a fight that you've staged in so many arenas whether it's the court or prison in writing and all of this is always underlined by a profound some people might say optimistic determination to keep dialogue going and to insist that real and systemic change is possible i'm enormously grateful to welcome you to the empty chair for this very very special episode where we're going to focus on your extraordinary and often in some ways very surprisingly beautifully drawn memoir about your time in prison in solitary confinement under the heinous 90-day detention law. The book was first published in the immediate aftermath of being imprisoned so if I'm not mistaken next year will be 60 years since you served that time. The sentence was for eventually five months and two weeks in solitary confinement, with no legal recourse, no lawyer, 
No visits except warders, policemen and the occasional medical checkup. This is an extraordinary book and written just after your release. I've always thought of it as a testament, not just to what you actually endured, but it remains a clarion call for an end to the imprisonment of writers and political prisoners today. And it really is no exaggeration to say that this book, which I've been reading on and off for 30 years now, is a major reason that I was drawn to do the work that I do at Penn. So thank you for all that you do and all that you continue to do. So I didn't have my own copy of your jail diary, but I went to the LA Public Library and I got a first edition, which would have been which would have been banned. Oh wow. And it was it was an amazing moment to see it and to hold it. A very, very well thumbed, well preserved, well loved copy in LA Public Library. One of many, but I chose to take this one out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you will see as I hold the copy that I have that it's of all these notes and going back over this text was a very, very moving and meaningful experience again. Even the very, very opening. Welcome again. And I wonder if you could tell us about what led to that imprisonment, the build up of events that took you there, and what it meant to write the book. Well, I wasn't a writer when I went into prison. I'd longed to be a writer kind of vaguely at school. I edited the school magazine, loved playing with words. It's embarrassing in a way how trivial the stuff was, and yet it's fun to recapture that energy, the sprightliness of language. And I adored reading poetry, intimate, soulful, romantic, about those little funny, strange feelings crawling around inside yourself, coming out like butterflies every now and then and being evoked by by the words that you were reading. Uh, And being in prison gave me the idea, the impulse, the need to write a book. And the thought of writing the book of my experience afterwards helped me in prison, converting the negative the awfulness, it'll come into words, into language. I'll find a beauty in the telling uh, out of all the ugliness. And that was somehow made it seem less totally futile and ugly and negative being locked up in that way. They wanted to get me to talk. They wanted to get me to talk about resistance to apartheid. And I wasn't just a literary person writing poetry, dreaming my thoughts with the right to speak. I was in the resistance. I hated apartheid. It was totally unjust. The law was used not to save people and protect them. The law was used overtly racist laws, draconian laws, death sentences, whipping to keep people in line, to crush their spirits. And as the law gradually became more ferocious as our resistance became bigger and bigger. So the elements of the law that were protective of rights, the right to have a fair trial, not to be locked up without trial, the right to have a lawyer, the right to have visits from your family if you were locked up, the right to communicate with others, to make your defense, all of those were stripped away. And uh, I've been waiting for it. You get into the struggle, and you're waiting for it every day and every night. And you're not only waiting for it yourself, you feel you're part of a whole worldwide movement of people resisting oppression, of people who fought in previous centuries even, and of of people who've been imprisoned. And you read books from prison. Notes from the Gallows was one of the books I read before I was imprisoned Mm. by Julius Wojcik. A, a, a communist in Czechoslovakia who smuggled notes out before he's executed by the Nazis. Exquisite, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Nazim Hikmet, a poet from Turkey, mm-hmm. who went into prison with his heart full, with great sense of humanity, deep in the struggle, and he wrote while he was in prison. He wrote beautiful poems, uh, one of which I wish to read from later on when we come to deal with, with the artist we're honouring and respecting today. And again, what was stirring and, and, and exciting for us was that he had that full heart when he went in and a very sharp, quick mind 
and he used that to write poetry in prison. And he came out, not a bitter, gnarled person seeking revenge. He came out with that sense of humanity. And it was so important, Julius Futrick and, and, and there was another French writer, Henri Alec, imprisoned in, in Algeria because he'd supported the uh, resistance to French colonial rule. Right. And with a beautiful introduction by Jean-Paul Sartre about prison and Sartre's description. And again, the literary dimension, the poetic dimension, the, the romantic side, if you like, not just of struggle, but of human existence, doesn't diminish your need for it, if in a way, is intensified by being stripped of contact with others. So we, reading this stuff, we feel it will prepare us mm. for prison. Nadia, nothing, nothing prepares you for solitary confinement. Nothing, nothing, nothing. I remember meeting an Italian senator when I was in exile in Mozambique who'd been imprisoned by Mussolini. Can you imagine now you speaking to somebody who spoke to somebody imprisoned by Mussolini? That's extraordinary. It was like the French Revolution used to be for me. <laughs> right. And, and he said, when we exchanged solitary confinement experiences, he said, you know, Albie, you never get over solitary confinement. And that's right. That's true. I was blown up later. Not only did I get over it, in a sense, had a sense of joy and triumph surviving. A bit of that sadness of solitary remains with me and will remain with me kind of forever. So you're not prepared for it. You get in, but you don't feel fate is malign. What's happening to me? How terrible. I'm not the writer plucked away from my desk because I'm writing Challenging Power. I'm an activist in a freedom struggle and the moment has come. Mm. And I've read about it and the door slams and I'm sitting alone in that cell. And it's like quiet chaos. No people, no movement, no one to speak to, nothing happening. You're enclosed in a, in a physical space and you don't know how long it's going to last. 90 days, then they can renew it for another 90 days and so on. And it's a test of their power against you. And they've got the keys. You're in a cell. You can't eat. You can't survive. You're dependent on the very people who are locking you up. Mm. And they will come in and they'll speak to you when they want to. And you are so keen for any human contact, part of you is craving for the interrogators to come, just to be able to speak. And part of you is extremely tense. Will they break me? Will I be strong? Will I be brave? All the time. Mm. And it doesn't get easier as the days go by. You work out a routine to survive. In my case, it would be doing exercises. I had some sense of time. There was a clock on on a the town hall clock, I think, of, of the Maitland town hall. It would, would bong. No, it wasn't Maitland. That was the other, when I was locked up in town. Then I actually had a clock and I could hear that clock going. But for most of the time in solitary, there was no clock, no watch, no sense of time. It just gets darker and, and, and lighter. And I would sing, make up songs just to hear my voice and go through the alphabet and start with always because Charmaine, Daisy, Daisy. And, and I treated a bit with X, I said, deep in the heart of Texas, something that's keeping my mind active. And my favorite was always, when I tell the story today, very few people in the audience know the song always, but it's a very popular song when I was younger, Irving Berlin, which he wrote to his wife, a beautiful love song, American songwriter. I'll be loving you always with a love that's true, always. So I changed it to, I'll be living here, always, year after year, 
always. In this little cell that I know so well, I'll be living swell always, always. And I would sort of waltz around in that little space, feeling amused that the song by Irving Berlin, which Noel Coward had written into a play of upper middle class manners in London, was keeping the spirits of this young freedom fighter alive in, in the cell in Cape Town. I'll be staying in always, keeping up my chin always. Not for but an hour, not for but a week, not for 90 days, but always. I would do exercises and wait, wait, wait until I hear the key in the door, the plate of food, tin plate, slid along the floor, and I knew several hours had passed since the last meal. And then I would try and remember the states in the United States of America. And I wasn't sure if it was 48 or 50, because two states, Alaska, had become states and Hawaii while I was at school. And I'd go through A's, Alabama, I'd say Alabama, South African voice, Arkansas, Arkansas, Arizona, but I didn't have anywhere to write it down, so I couldn't keep track. And through the B's and the C's and the D's, I think I got up to 37. Hmm. No, no, I got up to 47, 47 once, 47. Things to keep occupied, to feel intelligent. And, and um, the interrogators would come and take me to an office. So I'm sitting on a chair at least. I'm not just down on the floor. And they'd start putting questions to me. And I'd say, I'm not prepared to answer your questions until I know what the questions are. They would say, we can't give you the question until you're prepared to ask. And we'd have this ding dong going. Uh, I might say during my second attention, it wasn't that polite. It was sleep deprivation, and that was after the jail diary, two years later. And it's just holding out, holding out, holding out, scratching on the wall. I had toothpaste, I used the edge. You know, your prisoners are supposed to scratch marks on the wall to keep track of the days, number of days. And then jail was total silence and broken by noise. Not human beings speaking, conversing door slamming, people screaming, drunk people, people banging on the doors, shouting just like dread, slamming, slamming, slamming. And then one day I hear, it sounds like whistling. And it's not the usual drunken songs and whistling that, that you'd hear. And then I listened a bit more and I whistle back and I'm trying to work out, now who's this other person? Um, is it somebody from my background? So I, I whistle uh, the red flag and Kosi Sikaledi Africa, ANC songs, uh, and there's no response. And finally I hear, Da 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 dum da 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 dum. It's it's the going home theme from Dvorak's Ninth Symphony, and it's beautiful music. And the theme of going home makes it very special. And I whistle back, and there's somebody there responding. And and one day I'm actually doing my exercises, press ups, and I want to get up to fifty, and it's thirty two, thirty three, and I hear the whistling. And I don't want the whistler to stop, but I can't stop my exercises. And I go up to 50 and I whistle and I get the whistling coming back. And I didn't know till months after I was, I was released who it was. And it turned out to be Dorothy Adams was the name from another political party, uh, South African. Just the Alexander Group. From the Alexander Group. And we became great friends, although we were political rivals 
up to a certain point. We were all anti-apartheid, and and she became, in fact, my assistant and secretary many, many years later when I returned to South Africa. So um, another literary aspect that kept me going was imagining I'm creating a play. Yes. Absorbing and, and utilizing the aloneness and the silence. And something happens to you when you're in solitary all the time. You, you start to feel worthless. You want to affirm that you have some dignity, that you are worth something. And it's not anything people are saying. They're not calling you terrible things. It's just you're so impotent. You're so useless. You're so, you feel so futile. And I would try and imagine applause. And the play is being put on at the West End. That's the epitome of cultivated, sophisticated, literary sentiment and, and sensibility. And this play that I'm imagining is being put on at a theatre in the West End. I had been once to London for a year and didn't go to theatre very often, but I'd seen Peggy Ashcroft in Hedda Gabler that stunned me totally and made me understand really what theatre could be. And then I used to go to the little theatre at the University of Cape Town. I saw wonderful plays, but that was nice. I wanted my comrades and friends in Cape Town to applaud, but I wanted the epitome (laughs) of achievement in the literary sense, applause in London in the West End. And there was a sequel, which maybe you can ask me about afterwards, to that. Any event, after 27 days marked up in Maitland Police Station, I moved to Weinberg Police Station, the back of a court. And here at least I had a bed that I could lie on. The difference between life on the floor and life on a bed or chair is enormous. And um, a strange station commander who's, who's very proud of the fact that he's got a lawyer, an advocate under his command, and a very polite one. Uh, He's used to people screaming and shouting and and swearing and, and, you know, people whose life has been miserable and hard. Mm -hmm. And now he's got an educated person in his captivity. And I discovered he was hated by his fellow policemen. They couldn't stand him. He's always shouting at them. But... To me, I think he felt the Lord had sent me to his prison, that he would captivate me and capture my mind and get me to talk. I don't know. In any event, so he was a bad cop, he was a good cop. And he he comes in one day, waving a piece of paper. If they'd listened to me, this would never have happened, he says. And he gives me a piece of paper. And the only book I had was the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament. And it came with very thin paper in two columns. And I rationed myself to two and a half pages a day in case this was the only book I'd have for years. So there'd be something fresh, something new. And my eyes used to running down the page. And I get this piece of paper handed to me with the writing going across the page. So I have to force my eye to go across the page. And it says in the Supreme Court of South Africa, Cape of Good Hope Provincial Division. Now I'm surprised. Until then, I'd been in a rage at the law. I was picked up as I was entering the building containing the advocates, 20 meters, 30 meters from the front doors of the Supreme Court in Cape Town. And somebody can be plucked off the street like that, thrown into solitary confinement. The law is rubbish. It's useless. It's lies. Hmm. And now there's a document, a legal document, and it's saying in the case of Albert Louis Sachs versus Johannes Jacobus Rousseau, it's hereby ordered that the applicant get reading matter. Number two, the applicant has access to pen and paper. Yeah. Wow, the law is the most marvelous thing that's ever been invented anywhere in the world. Your motions get very, very wild. But of course, I won't show, I won't give this away. So 
I'm going to get books. I'm going to be able to read. But it's not so easy. I want to give them a list of the books. And they say, no, 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 no. We know what will happen. And they imagine there'll be little pinpricks and coded messages to me and stuff like that. You must write on a piece of paper the books you want and we'll take it to the local library. Hmm. I imagined, it gave me great joy, the librarian getting a piece of paper from Constable Van Tonde asking for remembrance of things past by, he would have said, Marcel Proust, which I tried to read, I couldn't. I couldn't. The, the, the realm was wrong for me. And Don Quixote, I'd never read it. I'd read about it. I read it. The two books that I remember, Don Quixote and Moby Dick. And mm -hmm. Don Quixote, we knew about this crazy guy in love with a woman who can't get tuppence about him with his faithful attendant tilting at windmills. I didn't know that Cervantes had been imprisoned himself. And the second part of the book was exquisite. This stupid, bumbling guy is now this idealist and represented with such fineness and he gets onto his horse and he's knocked down, he's in the dust, but he gets up onto that horse again. That was me feeling, you know, I could identify so much with this guy and his trusted supporter, colleague, we would have said, comrade, a beautiful book, exquisite book. And then the other book that was tremendous for me was Moby Dick which again, one of the books I'd put aside. I love books about people falling in love and marry at the end sort of thing, English-type novels, but have great emotions. Even Dostoevsky and even Tolstoy, the grand novels would end basically about passion, love, gained, lost, maybe regained uh, between people. And here was a book about this crazy guy on a ship and a whale. And... The power of it was just so immense, that real world, imaginary world, and some of the themes, again, I've identified with. Uh, when I spoke years later to being a judge, I remembered the sailors on the ship out in the ocean. Some would just go round and round the ship to keep in touch, and others would go out into the sea and swim back. And I said, we need both kinds of judges. Judges who go round and round and round, who are safe and focused and organized, and judges who strike out and take a risk and come back again. It implanted something in my head. And I said, maybe even judges like Pip, who fell overboard and went down to the bottom of the sea and saw amazing stuff and came up and was a little bit mad. So literature helped me enormously. And just being able to have a pen in my hand and to write on a piece of paper was, it's not the same as speaking, I'm speaking to you now. Uh, and I can see you smile, you know, if I say something that, that amuses you. Uh, there's no reaction, but you can invent and you can imagine. And right at the beginning, I couldn't even move the pencil. It was a pencil I think I had. I was frozen. It was another kind of writer's block of a totally different order. A fear of expressing myself. Of course. Putting something in words that could be read by the gods. Then I started writing. And I jotted down little words, a word here and a word there, because now I'm actually starting to write the book. I'm not writing at the beginning. I'm writing words that correspond to experiences. And your experiences are almost nil, like nothing's happening. So the tiniest thing becomes an experience. But I didn't want to forget anything. So I just write down a little word, the caterpillar. All my memories are seeing a caterpillar and seeing it move a little bit and, and so on. That reminds me of a day, but reminds me of all the little things I did to try and, and occupy myself. Then I would 
put down. I forget even what those words were, and I didn't keep that piece of paper. I think one was song, Caterpillar. Was it? Okay. From my memory. Okay, you've read the book more recently <laughs> than me, so you know better than I do. And, and they were all in preparation for, for when I came out writing the book. And that, that was actually now strengthening what had been simply an idea in my head becomes more than an idea in my head. I'm actually putting, literally putting pen to paper, pencil to paper, not with anything more than just a little indicator, a, a little thing to remind me. And then well, I, I described my release, re-imprisonment, going through the motions of the law, which says it's for 90 days, being released for three months, coming back in, and, and afterwards being moved to a prison in town close to the city hall. And that's when I would hear the clock. And Sundays I would hear the uh, carillon. To this day, if I'm in town and I hear the carillon, I get goose flesh, shivers. Mm. It's joyous, happy Sunday music, Christmas music, and so on. And, and, and uh, like Pavlov's dog, you know, I, I'm, I'm conditioned to associate the carillon with, with confinement. Out-of-body experiences, which, which I'd never had before, I'm sort of lying there as though my spirit, my something, me, is floating up into the corner of the room. Very powerful emotion, and then settling back in again. One day, as I'm going out for exercise, uh, there was a prisoner sweeping up a black prisoner with huge shoes. They just had to wear any shoes they could get. And he just said, take it easy, take it slow. So that's the advice I got from mm -hmm. him, which I'm sending out to any of you who might be in prison one day, take it easy, take it slow. And mm -hmm. uh, what I realized now was a lost gasp on their part. They sent my mother to visit me my first visitor now. And there I see my mom, Ray. And I'm so excited and I'm starting to talk, 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 talk. And she puts her finger up. I was so proud of her. I got my politics from her and from my dad. They were both trade unionists, am I right? He was a trade unionist. He was in the Communist yeah. Party. He was expelled from the Communist right. Party. My mom was the secretary, well, my mom used to say to me and my little brother, tidy up, tidy up, Uncle Moses is coming. And Uncle Moses wasn't Moses Cohen or Moses Cantor, it was Moses Kotani, the General Secretary of the Communist Party. So I grew up in a world where for my mother, a white woman, to be not only working for, but, but mm -hmm. having huge admiration, respect for a, a black man, that was normal. And the world outside was the abnormal, mad world. And now she's obviously aching. I'd been told my brother, younger brother Johnny, was going to have an open heart operation. And the joke that came to me in jail was, poor Ray, my mother, her son, the lawyer, goes to jail, and her son, the doctor, Johnny was a doctor, goes in for an operation. any event, I wasn't going to talk anything that could be useful, but for her it was more important that uh, I didn't speak, that I didn't give away names to to the police, anything like that, than that she gets her son back. Oh, incredible. And she told me afterwards she had her hair done, she bought a dress which she'd never worn before, and she went to see Albie. And Ray was very quiet, she wasn't demonstrative. My dad was very demonstrative. Very, very quiet, but she had something, a, a resilience and an idealism, a quiet idealism that, 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 that was very, very strong. Right. And an unwavering commitment. And then suddenly I'm released and suddenly they come to me and they say, you can go. Now I'd be allowed 20, 25, sometimes 30 minutes exercise every day. And I'd run around whatever little space I was in and running around clockwise, anti-clockwise, clockwise, anti-clockwise, anti even feeling nice that I can think about the muscles in my body. And um, wow, I'm free. Now I put on 
I must have had running shoes, tackies we call them in South Africa. I don't know if I could run all the way from centre of Cape Town to the beach where I'd grown up. Must be about um, five, six, seven miles. Mm. But I'm free. I'm free. And I run through the city. I don't think there were any traffic holdups for me. Go down, for those who know Cape Town, through Greenpoint, down to Beach Road in Seapoint. And what had been a, just a very slight incline, I'd thought, at the end of the Beach Road in Seapoint. Mm. Phew, that was tough getting up there. And then running on, running on, running on, further, further, further. And then I arrive at Clifton Beach, where I'd grown up. And I go down the steps, down the steps, feeling joyous and triumphant. And by then, a number of my colleagues, advocates at the bar in their dark suits with their shiny black shoes, are joining me. And I don't know who looked more bizarre on the beach. Me, dressed, flinging myself into the water, or all these advocates in their smart suits and their black shoes on, on the beach. Uh, and to all intents and purposes, to all appearances, I, I was triumphant, but inside something was crushed. Something was, was, there was a heaviness there. And my second attention, which is not in the jail diary, deals now with a much more severe form of interrogation. But the two years in between, I'd spent writing the jail diary. I see much of that time. And uh, now there's a sense of excitement. I've got the story. It happened to me. And the idea was to convey to people in the struggle who might be going to prison themselves, but not specifically to them, only to them, to convey to the ordinary reader what it's like how you feel, the, the intimate experience side. And you don't have many deep thoughts when you're in solitary like that. I don't know what you need for deep thought, but you need some interaction, some communication, some kind of energy that comes from, from voice. And also, how do you convey what was 168 days of total boredom without saying total boredom, nothing happened. That was the challenge to me because your experiences and emotions are, are, are very strong, very intense, it's horrible. And uh, on a good day, you just feel depressed. How do you convey it? And so I started writing down all, I looked at that little piece of paper, I added to it in, in no particular sequence, lots and lots of remembrances then I started grouping them. And then the only bit that I, I, that wasn't, if you like, authentic, was I would compress certain events. Otherwise, it's just too tedious. You know, if you spend 24 hours speaking about 24 hours, it, 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 it's impossible. Also, put in one day in the life of, in my life, I'd read the um, Soldier Nitsyn One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. So I thought I'd have one day in my life, which actually took in more than one day, different things that had happened on, on different days. But by and large, everything there was experienced and, and as I remembered. And somebody who helped me was, first of all, in those days, I didn't type. I used to write out my legal opinions, give it to a typist. And I think I did type a little bit, but very, very slow. So I wrote in longhand and I needed somebody to type. And that was dangerous because by law, I was forbidden to do anything for publication. And by law, it was a criminal offense to um, possess anything I'd written as a banned person. So. The typist would be a friend of mine, and it's not easy to ask somebody to risk being sent to jail for the typing, but I found a couple of good friends who, who could do it. 
And I also had to do it in a way that wasn't obvious, knowing that I could be followed. The phone in the house where I was staying could be tapped. So I once described, I think, to the BBC as behind open curtains. If you close the curtains, if you look as though you're doing something secret, you're inviting attention. So I'd have to write with the curtains open and conduct myself in as open a way as possible. In any event, I'm giving the manuscripts for being typed up. And then there are police raids not connected with me and all the manuscripts come back to me. But meanwhile, one person who had helped me with the actual writing, her name is Beryl Bloom. Her husband, uh, Harry Bloom, wrote the book for King Kong, the musical. He wrote a book called Episode and Transvaal, very fine book. He'd been on the run, he'd gone to England, leaving Beryl behind. I think the marriage was, was in trouble. But she lived with an author, and I gave Beryl the first 20 pages that I wrote. And I started off with, so this is what it's like hmm. in the present tense, to just give a flavor, uh, one page, and then in such and such a day, such and such a place, this happened, that happened, I went into the past tense. She read, she said, I'll be, that opening page is terrific. The other stuff's boring. And so I wrote the whole book in the present tense. Hmm. And it made an enormous difference in conveying the existential, the experiential side of being locked up. And three out of four of my very personal books are written in the present tense, my autobiographical books in that way. In the end, I've got a manuscript. Now what to do with it? It can't be published in South Africa. We had very few publishers in South Africa and they published travel books, mm. one or two romantic history stories. Mm. So I had to get it smuggled out. And I don't know, somebody was going to fly to London and would meet Ruth first there. So I said, please, can you give the manuscript to Ruth? And some weeks later, I get a message back. It's all done clandestinely saying, Albie, I like the book very much. It's really excellent, but I can't get a publisher for you. So I'm giving it to your dad to get a publisher. And I'm a little bit puzzled by that. And it turned out afterwards, my book, I called it 168 Days, and she'd oh. written a book called 117 Days. Okay. So she couldn't get, as it were, a competitor book to the book she was bringing out. Then a message comes back to me that my dad had found a literary agent, Hope Laresh was her name, who helped some few famous authors who carried her, but unknown authors, uh, progressive writers. She's well known as somebody that left-wing people would go to and she would try and find publishers for them. And that Collins were interested in publishing. Yay! It's just, you know, you fly, you float. It's just fantastic. And then I picked up the second time and that's much rougher with sleep deprivation and I break up to a certain point. And again, I'm saved by a court application that was brought from really intense interrogation that might've got real serious. Well, by, by then my information was stale anyhow, but could have really crushed me completely. And um, I, I decide to leave, to go into exile. Very hard decision. For a while, I'm, I'm too strong to leave too weak to stay on and fight. And now eventually I'm not even too strong to leave. And I get a message that Billy Collins is coming to Cape Town and he wants to see me. I say, he's very welcome. And it's the knock on the door at the agreed hour and I go and I grab him and pull him into the corridor. And he's very puzzled. He thinks maybe all that time in solitary has disturbed my mind. And I say, I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Collins, but I'm sure there's a bug in my, in my office. And I wasn't doing it to impress him. It did impress him. We just took it for granted that all our conversations were being bugged. And then he said, do you want us to publish the book while you're still in South Africa? And I said, no. The first time I was willing to take it, 
after the first, you know, then I would be a writer in prison. The sentence wouldn't be 20 years or life or anything like that. And it could be six months or one year. And I weighed it up and I said, that'll be good for the book. You know, I'm thinking now as a possible author. And now after my second attention, I felt no, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, they, they, they've, they've crushed me. In terms of resistance, I'll go to England. Being on the boat was amazing. Today people, boats are for seniors traveling around the world. Then that was the way you traveled. Very, very few people went by plane. You know, diplomats, uh, very few, very extremely rich people. And it was a world of 13 days, I think, where you're not going to be sent to jail. You're not going to be raided. There's no dread. There's no terror. And you play ping pong and, and tenor coits and you can read. And so, so that was very, very helpful as a transition. Uh, and then the publishers are waiting for me. And Fervut was assassinated, I think, the day after I arrived. And the BBC asked me to speak about it. And I'm on the news. And the interviewer, I forget her name. She was the only woman interviewer on BBC in those days. She became quite, quite famous afterwards. Of course, it's, this assassination is absolutely terrible. And everybody must announce it. But, uh, and I said... In the townships, there's jubilation. And then I went on to say, but assassination doesn't change anything. It's not the way to go. And then the uh, Times newspaper, jubilation in the township says Cape Town Advocate. And the publishers are worried it's going to be bad for the book. So for the one and only time in my life, I wrote a letter to the Times saying that I had said that. It's true. I was sure there was jubilation in the township. But I'd gone on to say that assassination it doesn't change anything mm. that was published. And then maybe I'll end this, this reminiscence by, I was invited to a pub that had a poetry evening, a literary evening. It was near Covent Garden. It was the Lamb and Flag every Tuesday, whatever it is, to read something from the jail diary. So that's my introduction, my insertion into the English literary scene. And before me, there's a poet, he was from New Zealand, it's the time of concrete poetry, where I'd never heard of it before. And this guy, I'm not going to try with my South African accent to mimic his New Zealand accent, but the poem was, it was the time of the fear of nuclear warfare. Better read than dead, Fred. And the red was in red. So it wasn't Shakespeare or Ibsen that greeted me on my arrival. It was better red than dead Fred. And now I was in another world, in another part of my life. Albie, thank you. This is such an extraordinarily rich, generous, amazing synthesizing of your experience. And when I think about it in tandem with the memoir, with the book, when I... When I read the book, I kept thinking about that E.M. Forster quote, only connect, because it struck me throughout the book as this deep desire to connect with others, whether it's through whistling, through song, whether it's this process of trying to write. I and mean, I think at one point you even write with a wishbone and a tube of old cheese that's been processed cheese that's been sent to you. So you sacrifice a little bit of pleasure from food in order to inscribe something on a piece of paper or the wall. When you eventually are allowed books, there's this ravenous desire for novels because what you want and what you what you crave, you write, is this um, is people and stories and human life. And when you talk about the distortive power of solitary confinement and the appalling assault, not just on the physical body but on the psyche, it strikes me that there's this way in which you're constantly trying to combat that, even when you're in jail by drawing on relationships that have gone before and relationships that you're desperately trying to establish in that space through these very, very limited means of communication and then through reading. And I also recall being very, very moved when you write about finding messages from other prisoners 
written on the wall. I think there's a moment where you find a, a message from a teacher comrade written in Latin, thus passes a night in sorrow, and then a little bit later, viva liberty. And that these are the means by which prisoners find each other and give each other some kind of hope and sustenance and strength. Yeah, I just wanted to to comment on how there's a kind of a robust and insistent optimism on connection that threads together, I think, all the, the writing and the gestures and your life's work. You know, I'd forgotten all those details. <laughs> well, they, they happen to be fresh in my mind in, in preparation for this. Yes, yes. I last read the book when Amnesty in Cape Town, I think, asked me to attend an evening at, on, on this day to honour writers of being in prison. Mm. And I decided I would just open the book randomly. Mm. I wouldn't choose a passage. The one statement that has, has lived with me very strongly is one, one chapter opens with, I've, I've done lots of things that were not so good in my life, forget the exact words, but one thing I'm absolutely sure of, I'm in jail not for being bad, but for being good. Yes. Uh, and I think that's vital. And I think that's the most important thing for prisoners of conscience to retain. Yes. Is never to give up on the fact that the hell they're going through is not because they were wicked or unworthy or, or whatever it is, but because they were good. I think that's just a wonderful place to end. And I've got a section here that I would I would just love to have a part of the text invited into the conversation. It's right on the first page in the introduction. Yeah. And it says, the cell is completely bare. No bed, no mattress, no bunk, no chair, no table. Hell, that's terrible. Not even a bunk. I gaze round and round. The world, even this tiny alien world, looks peculiar from the floor. There is something else wrong with this room. It is not just the angle from which I see it that makes it look so strange. I have it now. It is not a room at all. It is an empty concrete cube with me, a human being, inside. Gravity keeps me on the floor, otherwise I would float around like a spaceman. That is what is wrong. There is no world outside. There is no outside that I am aware of. I cannot see out of my cell. The walls are too high. I jump rapidly and then tell myself, Riley, there's no hurry, no hurry. 90 days is a long time. And then another 90 days and another and another, no hurry. And I just think even in that, those first few paragraphs of the book, you introduce us to the grand immorality of imprisoning human beings and how what it is is a way of extracting people from society, cussing them off from the social. And then when you speak so beautifully and so movingly about how that is what stays with you, that the physical stuff is something that can be, I suppose, in some ways transcended, but it's the psychic assault that lingers and stays. I'm actually <laughs> very impressed. It's a beautiful piece of writing. It's my first writing it is. Yes. of my first book. I don't know, I might have revised it several times, you know, to get it so the cadence is right. But it was to draw the reader in. It's like, follow me and mm. be with me on this journey mm. that we're going to have. And it's to encourage me to be now communicating the things that I couldn't communicate while they were happening and explaining something of, of, of what it's like. Yeah. I think there's also this thing where you have such an amazingly rich interior world. So even the fantasies that you describe in the text, whether it's a fantasy of the girl that you're going to marry who's in London, who you declare is, you know, has some middle class interests but some money and you feel like you can sort of balance each other out nicely in that <laughs> way. So there are these moments that are actually, there are, astonishingly, there are amusing moments, but also there's a moment where you dream, and you spoke about this earlier, of a play. And it's a kind of a metafictional moment because of course the text does get converted into a play um i think is it david hare or directs i'm not sure um it, it, no it was um oh it's um it's david edgar it was at the donmar yes 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 and i saw it there i actually saw incredible. it incredible so when 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 i went to canada for the first time 
the Canadian anti-apartheid movement arranged a welcome for me. This is now after I'd been blown up and lost my arm, got out of hospital. I'm yes. teaching at Columbia University and I go to Canada. Big, powerful movement supported us in the struggle. And we're planning the evening in the church hall. And R.H. Thompson, who was their great Shakespearean actor, is going to play L.B. Sachs, which he'd played apparently to great acclaim in different parts of Canada. And people are saying... So the idea is that, that we start with the play, we get it out of the way, and then we have the politics. Mm. Mm. And I say nothing doing. You don't want to kill the emotion. Get the politics done. Everybody say apartheid bad and welcome LB and so on and so forth. Let people leave with the play ringing in their ears. Mm. So what part to do? And that's the exact part that he decides he's going to read from. And it ends up, and I'm imagining now, I'm sitting in my cell imagining the play being put on in West End in London. Mm. And I'll say, and in the play, the end of Act One, the Albie person playing me will just walk to a wall and sit down, and the audience will stare at the wall for three minutes. Let them see what it's like just for three minutes staring at a wall. So we've arranged it now, and now I'm taking over as the director, and I'm saying, Orich, you'll read that bit, you'll sit down, You'll say the written bit, let the audience see what it's like just to stare at a wall for three minutes. And I'm not going to make you wait for three minutes to hear. And then I walk onto the stage and we embrace each other. And uh, we did that. It was very theatrical. Mm. And some years later, after I'd been blown up and lost my arm, come out of hospital, British theatre people put on a benefit for me and four actors who had played Albie Sachs were in, in that performance. It was at the Young Vic. Hmm. Well, the audience knew that the actors knew that Albie was sitting in the audience. So that added a huge theatrical emotion to the event. And then I walked up onto the stage afterwards with my short arm which I'd lost in the bomb blast. And, and I asked for my mother to come up. I said she was mentioned in the play. And I asked for Dorothy Adams, to whom I whistled, to come up. Hmm. And, and there were lots of tears, including from my mother and including from Dorothy, including from me in, in the young Vic. But it was a very wonderful expression by the theatre community in England hmm. of, of, of love and support for me and through me for our struggle and for people fighting for freedom everywhere in the world. Albie, thank you so much for a conversation that has encompassed activism, resilience, resistance, fighting, art, creativity, how the human psyche survives, but also a glimpse into the decades and decades of activism that you've devoted to freeing our people, making the world a better and safer place. Our gratitude is to you always, not just for coming on the podcast, but for all that you have done and all that you do do. Um, and I'm going to ask you to read your message to Osman Kavala. Osman Kavale, I don't know if you're going to hear this message, but I'm going to read it. And maybe one day, hopefully not too long in the future, you'll be freed. The world will ensure that you're freed, the people of Turkey will ensure that you're freed to be able to hear this podcast. And it's it's a selection from the Turkish poet Nazim Hikmet, whom I read before I went to prison for the first time, who inspired me. And he inspired me because he went in as a human being, a freedom fighter was a human being, never lost his humanity, his poems were always filled with humanity, he came out not embittered and hard, but he came out, his health wasn't good, there's a lot of sorrow in his words, but always the humanity was there. And these are the words that I picked up in his poem called On Living. Living is no laughing matter. You must live with great seriousness, like a squirrel, for example, 
I mean, without looking for something beyond and above living. I mean, living must be your whole life. Let's say we're in prison and close to 50, and we have 18 more years, for example, before the iron doors will open, we'll still live with the outside, with its people and animals, struggle and wind. I mean, with the outside beyond the walls. I mean, however, and wherever we are, we must live as if we will never die. Thank you so much. And my message to Osman Kabbalah is also a tribute to Albi Sachs. It's taken from Arundhati Roy when she speaks about what gives life meaning. And I quote, To love, to be loved, to never forget your own insignificance, to never get used to the unspeakable violence and the vulgar disparity of life around you, to seek joy in the saddest places, to pursue beauty to its lair, to never simplify what is complicated or complicate what is simple, to respect strength, never power, above all to watch, to try and understand, to never look away and never, never to forget. Thank you so much to Justice Albi Sachs for sharing your experiences so incisively, generously. We are indebted to you and you remain an inspiration to us. This episode was produced by Andre Burnett. Thanks to our podcast executive producer, Laura Buxbaum, to Penn South Africa board members, Kate Hyman, Yawande Amatozo, and the whole of the board of Penn South Africa, and to our wonderful interns. And thanks too to Amy Bell Malautzi and Jahan Jones Rodkowski for their support. Join us again next week for a new episode of Season 5 of The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. If you'd like more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our solidarity with imprisoned rices across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversations and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa, and the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening.